ask you to warmly welcome Phil as he comes this morning. Pastor Phil McCollum. Well, good morning. Good to see you all. And we had a great time with the men today, or yesterday and the day before, and today. Uh, And we talked about the kingdom of God and who Jesus is as our king and declaring him as our king because we have not just good news, but great news. Uh, A lot of people watching way too much TV news these days. And this is a place of hope. And if you go to my Facebook page, you'll find zero about the election. Why? First of all, it's pretty depressing. The whole, no matter what you think about. Uh, but I have a greater hope is that my leader didn't change last Tuesday. Jesus is king. We have great pride in that. And the Oval Office is oval for a reason. It shapes those who sit in it. It rounds off the rough edges. Why? Because he's king. Proverbs says... The heart of the king is a watercourse, guided by the Lord. So the church has a higher trust. You and I are the anchor for society. We are the source of hope. So let's speak hope and bring hope into our world that needs hope. Well, we've got something in common. We both love Philip Musselberg. Uh, You've known him. I know him. Now we're going to get to know each other. Other thing is, uh, well, Philip and I have known each other probably 25 years, long, long time, and of course met uh, Pastor Doug and then uh, Scott and Wanda and Deanna all at the, uh, up at Lake Tahoe back in August of 2014. I went up to see Philip and Mandy, and that was a great time, refreshing time, and now I get to be here. So something happened this weekend, a new thing in my life, first time I've ever preached in California, and God works over state lines. It's good. This is state number 12 on my little list, where I've preached for Jesus, and one thing I've discovered as I read the Bible is when God wants to change us, he does usually two things. This is all the way from Genesis to Revelation. It's consistent. He takes people on a journey, and he introduces them to new people. So whenever God wants to change your life, he'll take you on a journey somewhere. You won't go somewhere you haven't been before, and you're going to meet people you haven't met before. And we think, oh, they're new, I'm new, I don't feel comfortable. No, this is God at work, takes you on a journey, you meet new people. So the reason I'm here is he wants to change me, and he wants to change you as a church. Because he takes us on a journey to meet new people. I I just sense God just wants to blow on your church and do something fresh. Because you've got a great town. Uh, I, I went for a run yesterday, and Scott and Wanda asked me when I got back where I went. I won't tell you where I went, because I might offend somebody, because they said, oh, you didn't go to the pretty part of town. Now, I, I know it wasn't really pretty where I went, but I said, you know, it was even nice there. There was some nice guy selling fruit on the corner, and he cheered me on as I was running. Uh, this is a good town. I feel good about this town. And of course, they drove me through some of the nicer parts of town. And what I enjoy about your town is you've got the, like, you have the sweetest houses here. The old ones look great, and the new ones look great. There seems to be a lot of family pride in just making a beautiful home. I just saw this across the board, your schools. I was driving by the high school on the way here, and I noticed even the standpipes, you know, for the, the water supply are painted the school color. I thought, there's pride in everything here. It's a good town. And God wants to make it a great town because he puts a church here because a local church is the hope of the world. I want to talk about a church moving forward. And of course, you know, when the guest preacher comes, he's got to introduce his family. This is my wife, Leslie, and we live in Seattle, been there seven years uh, at a church called Evergreen Church. We're halfway between Microsoft and Boeing up on the the north shore of Lake Washington, if you know anything about Seattle. Up in the top right corner is my daughter, Laurel, and her husband, Jeff. Macy is in the photo because she feels she's human. Down below is my son, Levi, and his fiancée. Her name is Eunice. They live in the Bay Area. He works for Pinterest. Uh, That's my family. I love my family. You love your family. And 
you're bringing your family to church and raising your family in the house of God is one of the most important things you can do. When times of crisis like this happen, get to church more. Get to church more. And when pastor announced the potluck, I want to come to the potluck. <laughs> and to be thankful for each other and to look forward. We need hope. We need encouragement. We need to be together. But we're going to talk about being a church that moves forward. Um, I lived in Australia for uh, over 20 years. That's where I met Philip and Mandy. Uh, and I, I keep up with the Australian news. And once in a while, news stories catch my interest. There was a story a few months ago about a guy in Melbourne, which is a big city in the south, who in his retirement obviously cashed in his nest egg and bought himself the sports car he must have been dreaming about his whole life, too. $150,000 he spent on a Jaguar. And the 70-year-old man got arrested for having too much fun with his car. Now, I'm going to play you the news report. A few words i got to explain. They're going to talk about hoon uh, and hoon laws. Hooning is basically driving too fast in your car. And uh, this guy was having way too much fun. For his age, so take take a look at this story. A 74-year-old driver whose brand new luxury car was impounded under Hoon laws has faced Ringwood Magistrates Court charged with street racing. It was the first driving offence for Robert Ellen, who just bought his dream car, a $230,000 V8 Jaguar. He saw a BMW revving up his car, so he thought he'll give it a bit of a stick, and uh, the police were right behind him. What what happened? You just get a bit carried away. Yes, from the time, yeah. Easy to do with a fast car. He's been fined $600 but kept his licence. Don't you love Robert Ellen? I mean, to, to take a bit of a risk at the end of life and cash in part of your retirement, get yourself that dream car, and then see some young guy in a Beamer and just say, hey, you're on, you know. <laughs> and take off. I mean, you got to live. Um, as the, the sign on the undertaker's desk said, every day above ground is a good one. You know? <laughs> Making a difference in the world where we are. I, uh, the reason I love Philip Mutzelberg is uh, I've known him now over many stages of his life. I knew him back when he had more hair and it was all dark. Uh, and... <laughs> But Philip is more alive now, more vibrant now, than I remember back then. I was a 20-something young pastor in, in a struggling church. Uh, I, I grew up in the Methodist church, where the, <laughs> the, the most technical piece of equipment we had in the church was a hearing aid. You know, it was <laughs> low-risk church. <laughs> And then I went to this gathering with this American preacher called Bill Hybels. Nobody had ever heard of him before. There were a hundred of us gathered in a hotel function room. And I heard Bill Hybels with blonde hair. He has white hair now, if you don't know who he is. And by the way, if you don't know who Bill Hybels is, pastors a church of 32,000, oversees the biggest network of churches in the world, the biggest leadership event in the world. But in those days, we didn't know who he was. He was this blonde-haired, 39-year-old, enthusiastic preacher from Chicago who talked about a church that would care about people who don't go to church. And I remember the talk he gave about Matthew's party. In fact, I mentioned this to Bill just the other day, and I said, yeah, you remember that message? He says, yeah, i got to dust it off and pull it out again. Because he said, Matthew was this guy who only had friends who never went to synagogue and felt they weren't good enough, and he didn't know what to do to reach them. And so he threw a party, and he thought, I'll invite Jesus and all of the buddies to come, and I'll get the music and the food going, and Jesus will come, and something will happen. I just know it. And he called up that message, Matthew's Party. And I will never forget, because my whole view of church did this in one, one talk. And from that point on, meeting Philip Munzelberg and hearing Bill Hybels, I got in my sports car 
and the church moved forward. My first church didn't know what hit them. I went back. I was so enthusiastic. I had heard something new, and I'm 28, so here we go. I'm, I'm loaded, both guns. And I, man, I scared them to death. I scared them to death. Second church, it did a bit better. We planted a church. And we just started with a simple little mission statement. Um, we exist for the benefit of the people who have not yet come. And we do everything with unchurched people in mind. And as a result, we saw God do some remarkable things, a remarkable influence. Um, I, one of the things I was so concerned about, our church was only at this point about 150 people on Sundays. We did our Christmas outreach. And one of the things that deeply concerned me in, in Australia, uh, the news media, if you think it's bad here, it's worse there. And it's just so anti-God. And I so wanted to see a life-giving church in the media. In fact, the church I'd been part of before had a lot of money. And they had invested, I was part of a staff, and they invested money in paying a consultant to try to get us on TV, and it didn't work. And I just prayed. Long story. But our church-rented building that we were in was at the bottom of the mountain where the TV stations were. And a TV news reporter started attending. And through that collaboration... Our church, not only Christmas, every Christmas and Easter, we were the church that represented the city. It was pretty weird, pretty wild. So we do you know, special set designs and stuff for the stage, and I would design it with the TV show in mind, because they would have the Pope, the Queen, the Church of England, because they always had to be there, and the Catholics, and then our church, New Hope. <laughs> and that, that was just uh, every, every Christmas and Easter. And I used to sit there and watch that and think, how did that happen? Because we started with this vision that we would reach people who don't go to church and do everything with on-church people in mind. We just developed a heart of love. Uh, and then seven years ago, I became pastor of a church in uh, halfway between Microsoft and Boeing. And to give you a little snapshot of my town, it's called Bothell. It's a really weird name. And you got to say it fast and move on. When you're not, when you're out of Seattle, you say you're from Seattle, you don't say you're from Bothell. In, in Seattle, you say Bothell, it's okay. But Bothell's basically a town of about 30,000, 40,000 in the middle of this big you know, metropolis. So we're kind of like Mayberry in the middle of Gotham City. You know, here we are. We got a town parade. It's got a great football team, little high school football team. We have a rivalry with Woodenville, the town over the line. And it's just simple. And in this town, Amazon took over because Amazon brought more people to Seattle than ever happened since the gold rush. And our whole city is now the number two fastest growing in America, and mostly from South Asia. And uh, they come from all kinds of different faith backgrounds, and they're our neighbors. So across the street from our church, literally a block away is a mosque, and a half a mile up is now the largest center of Hindu worship in North America. I drive by every day. It's right around the corner from my house. And most of my neighborhood now, 90% are non-Caucasian, and they're from everywhere else except Bothell. And I've had to guide my, not only our church, but our town, because we're deeply involved in our city, to work through. There's 70 languages now spoken in my community. And we had to make some pretty big choices of how are we going to love our community and reach our community, and I'll show you some things along the way. Can I just tell you, it's fun to get the sports car called the local church of the hope of the world, and let Jesus drive it. And give Jesus the keys and the steering wheel. And let him have his church back. Careful, because when you give him the church back, he might not give it back to you. <laughs> he likes taking his church back and working through people. There's a phenomena taking place in our generation that has never happened in human history. People are living longer. And as a result... We now have five generations alive at the same time. This has never happened before. Historically, there have only ever been three generations alive at the same time. That's creating the tension. That's actually a lot of what we're seeing politically. We have five generations alive at the same time. And this happens in church life. It was complicated enough with three. Now we got five. But the positive side is this. You and me, who are getting older, have a second life. Um, I just turned 55. And um, I said to my wife, we're on vacation. Um, a couple things happened this year. One is I hit my 30th anniversary of being a pastor in the summer. And the second thing is we're on vacation. 
I don't know, I was down at the beach having coffee, praying in the morning, and I just came home excited. I said, Leslie, we're stepping into the best season of our life. The next 30 years, yes, 30 years, I'm not going to retire. The next 30 years are going to be the best years of our life. You and me are now getting old. Not a good thing to say. And it, kind of a long story, but that day I just happened to stumble across three different great spiritual leaders in the church. One of them was Bill Hybels, and I just happened to see videos when they were young and when they were old. And I, I watched them, how they changed over time, and I came to this conclusion. They had a lot more to offer the older they got. Bill Hybels can say things now with confidence, and I mean, when you get old, who cares what people think? Just say <laughs> what you think. No. But you can also, as Philip does so well, is just get behind and encourage young leaders. So here's my perspective. Um, I'm, I'm in the process of giving all of my leadership away and giving the church away. I've guided all of our seniors through this in our church. Is you and I are here to equip the next generation and to give them the reins of the church and to take this thing forward and to applaud you as you take it onward. Now... Paul, at the end of Romans chapter 15, and just a little side note, I did this series on the book of Romans this year. I tried to do it as fast as I can. It only took me five months, and the church was so excited when we finally got to the end of this series on Romans. And this is one of the last messages I did. I, I thought, what does ministry look like, not at the end, but really in the middle? You and me are stepping into, at least I am, my second life, this life that I get to live because I live in a generation where people live longer than they did in times past. And Paul tells me how to live. This is what he says when he reflects on his ministry. He says, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, except to, to bring the, the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, to bring the Gentiles. You know what the word Gentile means? It means people without God. Uh, the Jews called them dogs. They weren't welcome to come into the synagogue. But Paul says his whole ministry is focused on people far from God. So here, here's what I've found is I spend lots of time with people who don't go to church. It's a discipline of mine. I belong to a, a fitness club, and I chose a really big one, so I'd meet lots of people. I take our whole church staff there, and they know us there. Uh, I was telling the guys over the weekend how I went into the sauna one day, and I, I was actually in one of those kind of hermit moods. I didn't want to talk to anybody. The thing was filled with people. I thought, I'll just sit in the quiet corner and just pretend I'm all by myself. Mehdi is there. Mehdi is from Iran. He's a Muslim. And he and I talk a lot, along with the Hindus and Buddhists who are there, because most of my community, 96%, do not go to church. I don't know your numbers in your community. But many, as he sees me, comes in, announces to this crowded room of sweating people, this is the pastor of the Evergreen Church. And he points to them, you need to go to this church. I have been there myself. He's only driven by the building, but anyways... I have been there myself. And he points to this guy who looks like Buddha. He's the, 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 you know, the, the Buddhist over here. He says, he used to, actually, he used to be a monk. He says, he says, you. He said, you looked him up online this week, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah, I looked him up. I wanted to know what they were about. And then he announces to everybody, when you leave this place, they talk about you. They know about your church. Because I really care about people who are far from God. Because... You and I aren't here much longer. A few more spins and we're home. Well, that was timely. I think that was a hint to keep moving on. All right. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him. Actually, I missed that. Let's, uh, let's see where we are. Those... I make my ambition to preach Christ where he's never been named, lest I build on somebody else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. If we and me can really get connected with the vision of Jesus, Jesus will get interested in our church. What he is looking for are men and women like us 
who will love his church as much as he loves his church. He puts churches in cities because he wants to reach cities and help them to connect with him. I'm in a really difficult spot here because nothing's happening and I'm, I'm pushing. And uh, if you just hit advance, Pastor, we might take this thing forward. We're going to talk in car metaphors so that at least half of the audience is connecting with me. Think of your church like a car. What would it take to get your car moving? When you got into your car today, what was it that got it kicking off and on its way? I would like you to take your pen, and do you have a place there for notes inside your program? You can write some notes inside your bulletin. If not, just write them on your hand or the back of your neighbor's neck in front of you, wherever it may be, <laughs> right, right down here we go. Maybe just click through to the next one there. You know, when in doubt, you know what they, you know what you do with the kids' remote control? You just twist the batteries around. Here we go. Here's the question. Ah, now we're back. We're firing now. What does it take to become a church that moves forward? I want to talk about seven things that would empower you as a church as they've empowered us as a church. Um, the church that I pastor in, in Seattle uh, was a church that had begun to plateau and was starting to decline in attendance. But what we have seen over the last seven years is a complete reversal. We doubled in size, uh, and through that have not only seen a lot of people come to faith but, and a lot of baptisms, but we've also seen a lot of Christians who were just sitting in church suddenly connected and engaged with the mission and loving the kingdom of God. It started for me as a young guy because I wasn't going to be a pastor. I was going to be a lawyer. I have a degree in political science, and I was filling out my application for law school. And at that moment, I, my, uh, I just heard this little whisper from God, and uh, I just sensed, he said, I have something else for you to do if you trust me. So I threw the application away. And my mom came and got the garbage the next day. And she said, why did you throw your application for grad school away? And I said, I don't know. I just feel like God's speaking to me about something. And I just said, Lord, if you are calling me, open a door. Long story. A door opened for me to go to Australia to be a youth pastor. And I lived with a family in their backyard. I lived in their travel trailer. It was freezing cold. It was just so cold. I remember just being wrapped up in a blanket all the time, just so cold. And I remember one particular time I was just so, so depressed because it was in the days before email and Skype, and it took you know, about three weeks to get letters back and forth. So my wife-to-be, we were engaged, would write each other every single day. And she would write me, and I would write her. And one day she sent me a little package, and in there was a cassette tape of a brand-new song that was out. And I put it into my ghetto blaster in those days. And I remember that song. And I just sat there and cried and cried. And this is what I heard God say. <laughs> I could have asked somebody else, but they said no. And so I asked you. And that's been my whole perspective of ministry. If you think I'm not doing very well, I'm relaxed, because I'm sure that somebody else could have done a whole lot better. But they said no. And I said yes. <laughs> and here I am. And this is a song I heard. I'd actually like you to listen. I actually went online and found it. I actually found the artist and wrote him a letter. A friend of mine knows him and thanked him. He's actually still leading worship at a church in Dallas. Uh, it's called Inside My Room. Here, have a listen. Don't you love the haircut? Inside my room I hear the people crying they do not know, they do not understand. Beyond these walls, millions are slowly dying. They've never tasted fruit from Canaan's land. Inside my room, some other 
song that you dance to in high school at the prom and you get choked up when you remember that that's the way I feel when I hear that song. That was early in my romance with Jesus and uh, he got me. I, 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 I canceled all my plans and in that point in my life my goal was to get rich and make a whole lot of money and I just laid it all down and said I I actually prayed this prayer. I said, anything that I would ever get financially in ministry, I would like to have that trans transferred into lives changed and souls saved. And many, many times I've seen people raise their hands and say yes to Jesus, and I know that the prayer is being answered again and again and again, because there's nothing more fulfilling than to see people come to faith in Jesus. How does that happen through a life-giving church? Here, the, here we go. Number one, you've got to start the ignition. That's the ignition of the church. It's programmed into us. Uh, Paul writes, Christ became a servant to the Jews. These are the people who understand how to be religious, how to do church, so to speak. Of course, it's synagogue, but same idea. They know how to do religious events. He, I became a servant to the Jews in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. When I ponder that, I think the first persons that need to be convinced that the gospel work are the people who have already believed. I, I find it's far easier to get unchurched people awakened not only to Jesus, but even to get excited about the gospel before they believe. That's a whole other talk, but they do get excited. It's far more challenging to stir and to motivate people who attend church that the gospel works and that it's the power of God and it really changes life. We've got to motivate those who do know Jesus to reach those who do not. And so God has to turn the ignition switch. And at different stages in my life, you kind of fall into a lethargy. You don't mean to. You just start going to church and it just becomes a church thing. And I was on staff of a, of a church where um, by this point the, I, I was the, the, the executive pastor and we had about 800 people. We had a big school, about 1,500 kids and uh, a lot of things going, great property, beautiful you know, position in the community, faithful attenders and that sort of stuff. But that church hadn't outreached in decades. Uh, we had fixed seating, um, metal framed pews. They were nicely padded, but they were fixed seating. We had no tables and chairs. We just came and we did church. We looked at the guy at the front and went home. And in that process, our pastor, our senior pastor, had heard about the Alpha course. If you've not heard about Alpha, it is one of the most remarkable ways to share Jesus. Uh, it involves just incredibly engaging video talks that come from a church in London. Uh, they're 22 minutes long. You show the talks. They're totally designed for people who don't go to church. At the end of the talk, people are at a dinner table with eight people, and you train the hosts of the table to guide a conversation that isn't confrontational and judgmental. People can say whatever they want. So at our Alpha recently, we had a, a lady attending who was a Wiccan, uh, who's, uh, it just, it was incredibly complicated. A lady came to me and said, oh, we have a Wiccan at the table. We can't have this. I said, yes, we do want this. That's where she needs to be. She's in the church where she can hear the gospel. We actually did move some Christians off of her table who were actually getting in the way and put people at the table who knew how to just listen without comment and without judgment, without criticism. Well, our pastor had heard about Alpha. I hadn't yet heard about Alpha. I didn't know that 25 million people around the world have gone through it. Uh, I was, this is the early days. And so I hear about this Alpha thing, and he says, Phil, I really believe in Alpha. And I said, that's great. Did I want you to lead it? Yeah. And he said, uh, six weeks from now. 
I'd like to have the whole church attend. I'm like, you're crazy. Uh, we had a number of problems. We have no seating. Uh, we have no volunteers. And nobody here knows how to reach lost friends. It's just not going to work. And I said, do you think I could have six months? See, my ignition doesn't want to start. He says, no, I'm pretty committed to six weeks. I'd like to do it in six weeks. So here's my decision. If pastor says, I'm going to do it. Do you get what I'm saying? Because God puts a man in leadership to influence a church to do things that Jesus wants it to do. So I got behind my pastor, and I put together a team of the sharpest, most passionate, evangelistic people in that church. There were about eight of them. I got them at the table, and they gave the same pushback. Can we have six months? I said, no, pastor says six weeks, and we're going to do it. It's a long story, but we got tables and chairs. We created 160 volunteers. We had all of our teams organized. We could clear out the entire auditorium from, table, from all of the seats and put all the tables and chairs up that we didn't have before. We got them at a discount. We organized how we were going to cook food, which we'd never done before, and we served 1,200 people in three events. Long story. Out of all of that alpha, I still remember the day when Sam, Sam was a young guy who came to our church, he met me one day with tears. He said, I'm praying for my dad to get saved. It was later that I heard the story why Sam's dad had said no to God so harshly. His father was really successful. Uh, is very successful in business. As a child, he'd grown up in a Catholic family, a lot of kids. Dad was on his way to Mass in the morning. He used to go to Mass every morning. As he rode his bike, he was struck by a motorist and killed. And Sam's dad decided, well, if that's the way God treats people who goes to church, I'm not interested in God. So he just got busy with business and made a whole lot of money. But Sam wanted his dad saved, and so he made this decision. Every day he would hug his dad. Nobody had ever hugged before. It was a really sad family. Every day he would hug his dad, he'd hug his dad, he'd hug his dad. And he'd tell him he loved him. Eventually dad told him he loved him. And then when Alpha came, he invited dad. And only Jesus could arrange this. He put at the table another businessman who was a believer, who John respected. That was Sam's dad. And there comes this point in Alpha, there's this weekend where people receive the Holy Spirit. You lay hands and pray for people. It's about week eight. And you're supposed to turn to your neighbor and say, can I pray for you? Simple, really simple. The Christian businessman turned to Sam's dad and said, can I pray for you? And this really highly successful, very proud business guy just grabs my friend by the arm and says, please, will you pray for me? As a result, he gave his life to Jesus. I was at another table. My table were PhD mainland Chinese atheists who would tell me as I prayed for them, I'm feeling something unusually warm right now. That was my table. But over at that table, I heard this hullabaloo shouting, crying, and I saw two men embracing each other, and there was Sam and his dad, because Sam's dad had been saved. You know, sometimes somebody's got to put the key in the ignition and get us going, because we've just been going to church, not thinking about what church is for. Uh, we are not here to insulate ourselves from the world. We are here as a lighthouse, as a lampstand, as an example, as an influence. The service, church service, isn't in the building. It begins when you and I walk out and we begin to change lives by the power of Jesus. Um, second thing we got to do is get the brake off. You ever driven with your handbrake on? Uh, the smoke cuts coming out of the wheels. Uh, verse 13 says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace believing. So by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Be a church of hope. Oh, no, Pastor. Didn't you know what happened in the election? I, I met a, a guy on the street. I was out for a run, and I said, I said no, I really think the future's going to be good. No, it's not going to be good. No matter who gets in the office, it's going to be horrible. Do you know that some reason negativity sounds smart and hope sounds naive? Isn't that true? But I think the opposite is true. It takes a lot more courage to be full of hope one of my favorite pictures. I've got it in, in my files, and I pull it out whenever I get discouraged. Is it was Dwight D. Eisenhower. When the whole Supreme Allied Command is living in caves in Gibraltar with water dripping on their desks, 
and they know that the future is bleak and they don't know if they're going to pull off what eventually will be D-Day. But this picture shows Dwight D. Eisenhower with that big Kansas grin from side to side. Because every time he walked out of the gloomy cave, he'd come out with a smile. And that smile won the war, people. Hope is powerful. Be a church of hope. Don't have the handbrake on. First church I, I led, they brought me to the building in the dark. And I realized later when the sun was up why they did that. There were reasons. It was pretty bad shape. I, I'm not kidding. Uh, when I suggested we paint the building, which had never, ever been painted, it was just bare, um, one of the board members said, why should we paint the building? Because if we paint it, we'll just have to paint it again. <laughs> I walked in. There were holes in the walls, windows broken. Half the seats were blue, half the seats were green, and the pulpit was orange. The carpet on the stage came out of some guy's house. He said, Pastor, we got new carpet and just gave the old carpet to God. I thought, why did you keep the old carpet to yourself? It had holes. It had stains in it. I mean, probably the dog had peed on it. It was bad shape. I remember just thinking, this is so ugly. We didn't even have a blade of grass. Long story, within a year, we won the City Gardening Award. We began to make improvements. We began to love that church and paint it and began to grow and prosper. And God began to bless. And I remember on my 25th birthday, I'd been there for just two months, Half the church hated the other half of the church, and they had a church picnic, and one half sat at one end of the field, and the other sat at the other end, and I went back and forth, and I went home, and I said, God, they hate each other, and I don't like them very much, and I just want to leave. And I cried for two days. And after crying for two days, God said, stop crying, and show me this picture of a brand new church building with blazing lights, with hundreds of people streaming. Long story, but eventually happened. But all along the way, there was this grumpy guy can I just, I can't use his real name in case it ever gets out there, because I do love the guy. Let's call him Fred. That's not his name. But every time God ever wanted to do something good, Fred was against it. I mean, just sour against it. He used to sit there and fold his arms and scowl and kind of sit sideways and stare at me and have these little talks with me, very intimidating. You know, I remember going home and crying after he talked to me. It was just so frightening. And... After about seven years, by this point, we built the building, and the hundreds of people were streaming to it. And God was blessing, and everything was taking place. You'd think Fred would be happy. No, he wasn't. He was grumpy as ever. Now, my mom and dad had come to visit. My mom is a credible prayer warrior. My, my mother's Jewish, so just think like Judge Judy, you know, with the Holy Spirit. That's my mom, just incredibly intense. And so Fred contacts. So Fred would make these little appointments to come and just tell me what to do and tell me off, you know, all the time. So he makes one of his appointments. My mother said, if after seven years Fred's a problem, then you are the problem. I said, thank you, Mama. <laughs> I went to the office and met with Fred and did something I'd never done before. He came. You know what he was complaining about this time? We had had the Terminex men come and get cockroaches out of the church and didn't have board approval to do so. Like, you want bugs in the church to wait around another month? I mean, it was in the budget. I mean, can I, can I spend a couple hundred bucks? Is that okay? Crazy. And after he finished, I said, you know what, Fred? Have you ever noticed over the last seven years everything that God has blessed in this church you've been against? And I took a little further. I, and I know, but I just lived with this for so long. I said, Fred, people talk about you. You know what they say behind your back? They say you're negative and critical. And boy, that, that just hit the button. Because he loved being accepted. And nobody had ever told him what people really said. And then I turned it to the positive. I said, you know what, Fred? God put you in this church to be a positive source of influence. Because when you speak, everybody follows. And if you would begin to speak out in faith for the things that God wants to do, you would gain respect and this church would begin to move forward. For the first time in seven years, he left the office speechless instead of me. And guess what? Fred became my friend. That man never hugged me ever in the, the 10 years I was at that church. I went back years. They've had me back multiple times at the church to speak. I went back to speak. 
And somebody came up from behind and hugged me, and it just felt like barbed wire. He's a big, tall, skinny guy. It felt like barbed wire was hugging me. I don't even know what it was. And I turned around and thought, what is this? Ouch, this, this hugging me. And there's Fred. I thought, he hugged me. Uh, sometimes people need a bit of a challenge. Get the break off. You know, negativity isn't smarter than hope. Hope takes a lot more courage, particularly these days. We really need hope. Here's number three. Get into gear. <laughs> Get into gear. Paul said he wanted to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of God so that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And I know that's a lot of words, but let me just make it really simple. When I preach the gospel, when you share your testimony, when you are a witness, what you and I are doing are laying people far from God on the altar, and it's like a stake sizzling. And the Holy Spirit is moved, and he touches their hearts and brings them to faith. Our church has begun to reach out into our community to the Hindus, which is huge in our community. Lots and lots of Hindus. And I was showing the, the men yesterday uh, some video from an event we do. There's a Hindu festival called Diwali. Well, we kind of transfer, you know, like you do trunk or treat with Halloween. Well, we kind of did the same idea. But with their pagan festival, we just stuck Jesus into it. And we said, we know right now Hindus are looking for light. We're going to tell you about the light of the world. And we hold, basically, it's a Hindu square dance party, because that's really what they do. They have these sticks and these beautiful dresses and outfits, and, and they do this incredible, it's fun, a lot of fun. Last year we did, we had 400 come. This year we had 800 come with their children. And in Indian culture, the children just run around to talk, and the parents listen to you. So it's the most intimidating thing at all. I am giving my five-minute little talk, you know, and I'm giving my five-minute little talk about Jesus, the light of the world, and the place is so loud, I can hardly hear. And all these Hindu parents are just staring at me, listening. And I just, it was, it was so disarming. I had to overcome this sense of they don't care, they're not listening. I had to push through that and just lay them on the altar and let them sizzle. <laughs> and let the Holy Spirit work in their hearts. We got to Offer lost people to God and get them into an environment where they can begin to hear God's voice. Um, number four, we've got to turn on the lights, your headlights. You ever driven out of a brightly lit parking lot, get halfway down the hallway and every hallway, a uh, highway, and everyone's flashing the lights off and on at you? And you, oh, I haven't turned my lights on. Well, we've got to turn on our lights as a church. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed and by the power of signs and wonders and by the power of the Spirit of our God. There's a lot there. Word, deed, power, signs, wonders. You and I have a God who hears and answers prayer. And you and I can pray for people far from God in their deepest point of need. We just got to turn on the lights so that people gather in. When I first arrived at our church uh, building back in um, 2009, um, I arrived in the dark. And I saw that uh, there was no street lights. Uh, there was a main road that went by. There were about 13,000 people a day that drove by our building. But it was just an incredibly black corner. And I just felt the Holy Spirit whisper into my heart, what the church needs are Christmas lights. Fast forward a couple years later, as I was continuing to pray, I just couldn't get it off the ground. It just wouldn't happen. I happened to look in the back of the room one Sunday, and there was a new family attending. And I felt like God said, get back there, meet that guy, and invite him to lunch. So I did. We went out for lunch, and over lunch I discovered that his passion was Christmas lights, that he had been mentored by the number one Christmas light guru in the world. If you go online, there are these fabulous shows. Well, that guy taught him that he had had this remarkable Christmas light show at his house, and he's showing me videos, but they built a new house where they weren't allowed to do this. And so he and his wife were looking for a church home where they could just take over the whole outside of the building at Christmas and put up Christmas lights. 
What did I think? He came thinking, like, I'm going to have to really convince this guy. What he didn't know was, like, Christmas lights? He said that my eyes just twinkled as soon as I heard it. Christmas lights? That was five years ago. We started, number five, looking ahead. And just like Paul says, we make it our ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on somebody else's foundation. We want to reach this community that is far from God. So we do that by taking a new road, doing some things that haven't been done before, taking some risks. If you always do what you've always done, you're always going to get what you've always got. But if you're going to do something new, you've got to do what you've never done before. Does that make sense? Try something new. Uh, there's a whole lot more space in your windshield than there is in your rear view mirror. There's a lot of preaching that. Stop looking at what the church used to do and just think ahead. What could we do next? So we did this thing with Christmas lights. Uh, what you're seeing are the Christmas lights from last year. Every year we add a little bit more and a little bit more. We add to this, there's a garage on the other side that was kind of neglected and forlorn. We've been slowly beautifying it. Inside we decorate it with, with trains and uh, decor, but the main thing is we give away chocolate chip cookies. We have a chef in our church, and we have this amazing to-die-for cookie recipe. The secret is the, the browning of the butter is amazing. Last year, we hand-mixed 20,000 of these. They're nice, good-sized cookies that we give away, along with hot cocoa. It's all free. Nothing is charged for. Everything we always do is free, because people think the church wants to take money. We give to the community. This year, uh, last year, well, first year, we had... 6,000 come, the second year we had 13,000, the third year we had 22,000, last year we had 40,000. And this year we're getting ready for maybe 50 or 60,000. So we bought ourselves this old cookie mixer, and we call it the Cookie Monster, and we're ready to make 30,000 cookies. My wife sent me a picture today. Some folks had donated flour. They bought the best flour, and it's this huge pallet of flour. We are ready to bake cookies. I just want to show you what the light looks like. does. You told me that in 2009. I would never have believed it. The drone shots in there, we didn't pay for. A guy had a professional photography company, came by, he saw our show, and he said, I just want to gift to you drone shots, and he came in and did those. Uh, 
But the coolest thing of all was on Christmas Eve, because we invited people to come to the service. Uh, I looked out in the, the, the group that was there, a lot of people, and there was a guy with a ball cap, and I thought, I need to go say hi to that guy. So I went over and said hi. I said, what's your name? He said, John, where do you live? And he described, and we started talking, realized we lived on the same street. He was my neighbor. His wife was a believer. He had fallen away, problems at home, and uh, their son, eight years old, looked up at the lights display and saw that greetings in different languages and saw underneath the service time, said, what's that? He said, you know, they said, well, that's inviting people to come to church. He said, well, I want this church to teach me about God, not you. I want to go here. So they came to church. Today, his wife is, uh, oversees our kids' ministry for the younger children under the age of five. Her name is Anne Marie. And they are heart and soul involved in the local church. John got baptized as a follower of Jesus because Jesus wants to change lives. When the church begins to shine the light and begin to reach into the community, people are hungry for hope. You've got to look ahead. We've got to believe that Jesus wants to reach and to change lives. Keep taking new roads. Here's number six. We've got to ask directions. Verse 28, chapter 15. When I've completed this, this is Paul speaking. When I've completed this and we have delivered to them, those are the Jews in Jerusalem, we're going to take them the offering, the money that he's been collecting, I will leave for Spain by way of you. What is he talking about here? Rome is the biggest city in the world at the time. Nothing bigger. Biggest thing happening. And there's no church at all. There's just a few Bible studies. Uh, all the Christians and Jews have been kicked out of the city, and then they had recently been allowed to return, and there's just a few Bible studies scattered around the city. And so Paul writes them a letter, we call it the Book of Romans, that builds a powerful church. And what he says is, this is what I believe. I'm on my way, and I'm going to give you the rest of the message when I'm there in person, and then you're going to help me pogo stick over this to Spain so I can take the gospel to the end of the world. Of course, in his mind, that was the end of the world. And that's exactly what happened. Paul went to Rome. He established the church and then goes on to Spain. He comes back to Rome. He's executed, and he dies. But you can say, well, what does that apply to us? Every church needs an outside voice. So for us at Evergreen Church, we have about three oversight pastors. These are pastors from outside who speak into us. One of those is Pastor Philip. Pastor Philip visits us at least once a year. And he tells me things like he walks in the auditorium and says, Phil, you need a new sound system. Thank you, Pastor Philip. Next visit, he comes. I said, what do you think of the sound system? Because I, I listen to his direction and take it to heart. He meets with our elders and guides us through challenging questions. Uh, we, we, we went through a tough season a couple of years ago, and Philip just stepped in. And so, you know how he asks questions? He didn't say anything. All he did was ask questions. And then we all started thinking smarter. Um, one day, I, he took me on a trip to Willow Creek, and he introduced me to one of the leaders. And as a result, we became one of the host sites for the leadership conference for Willow Creek. And as a result of that, we've had a lot of influence in the city that we've never had before because somebody from the outside spoke in. One of the hardest things in life is to ask directions. But when you and I receive vision, it is so powerful. So powerful. This is why I personally make effort. I, I'm very picky, but I make an effort to get myself to places where my vision can be stirred by people who are further down the road than I am. I go to conferences. I go to events. I take my staff to conferences. I take my staff to events. I expose them to good teaching because I want us to be stirred. Like right now, back home in Seattle, who's preaching? I have a great team, a lot of good guys who can preach. But there's a powerful pastor. You think, oh, wow, he must be from some big mega church. Actually, he's in a wheelchair. He's from Rwanda. And he went through the genocide. And he has a powerful church in Rwanda. And the most powerful vision of faith. He is just contagious with joy. He preached at our church last year. He was so effective. I said, please come again and preach this year. Why do I do that? Because I want my church exposed to what's happening in other parts of the world. So they have a vision of what's going on. You know, as we begin to receive vision, we begin to see what's happening in this 
wider thing of the kingdom of God around the nations. We need to have direction. Um, here's the last one. You and I need to click along here and get to the next one. Pray for the driver. And I'm talking here about your pastor. That's my car. So my wife and I are empty nesters. You know you're an empty nester after your kids have all left home. It's 11 o'clock at night and you're sitting up late waiting for them to get home from their night to talk to them before they go to bed. And then you realize nobody's coming home. You're all by yourself. We're empty nesters. And we were buying a, a new vehicle, a used one, and we were deciding what would we get. You would think at our age and stage of life, we get something a bit smaller, but we both knew what we would get. We needed an SUV with the back row seats that would fold down so that we could cart lots of things and carry people because we're in ministry. We're all about ministry. We bought a house that's bigger than what we really need, and there's one reason, so that we can easily fit 40 to 50. I would like to put 60. My wife said no more than 40 people at the house, Phil, uh, people in our house um, because we're going to do lots of stuff for the church. That's just how we live. The church is our whole heart and our whole life. Um, and I, we recently had a tragic fire in our city downtown. And uh, uh, it made the national news. Flames 300 feet in the air. It burned several city blocks. And when the city met this crisis and the Chamber of Commerce responded to the need, there's only one church they reached out to and asked for advice and have asked for help, and that was us. And Leslie and I went down and helped at the event. We loaded up the car with all of the coolers and everything. And as we were doing it, I thought, stop a minute, and I got a picture. So what you're seeing behind there is the burned up buildings in downtown, and that's our vehicle, and that's the ministry. Now, if I drive that vision, then hopefully everybody else behind me just follows suit, because nothing will be in the church unless it's first in me and in my own heart. So we're all in this thing together. Pray for your driver. Who is your driver? It's your pastor. You have a really good pastor and his wife. I got to spend those few days with them at Lake Tahoe, and then again with them now. I'm going to tell you about some of his strengths in a minute, but first let me read you the Word of God, and then we'll get back to that. Romans 15, 30. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me, your pastor, Paul's writing, in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from unbelievers in Judea. So he's going to Jerusalem. He's scared of what's going to happen. He had good reason, because they actually put him in prison. He was there for another two and a half years. And that my service in Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that God's will, by God's will, I may come to you with joy and be refreshed by your company. Isn't that good? A church that refreshes the heart of the pastor. So while I was sitting here in worship, my staff are sending me texts that make me joyful because we refresh each other's hearts. May God of peace be with you all. Amen. Pray for the driver. You have a really good pastor. In some churches I visit, you have to kind of work hard to think of something good to say. But not with this one. But here's what I like about Doug. First, he has a very approachable personality. It's just so easy to talk to you. You got a, a charming wife, and you love dogs. I know that. <laughs> Anybody who loves dogs loves people. He has a heart for business. That is so important in ministering in the community. But not just a slick business guy, he has a huge heart for people who are disadvantaged. And forth in hope, what he's poured in there, he could have walked away when it was tough, but he stayed the course and has pushed through and persevered. And then he's a son of the house and loves the church and left the potential of making money in the business world. By the way, it, this may be a surprise. You can make more out in the world than you can in the church. <laughs> and he serves here because he loves you. Now, you might think, oh, good preachers, they come from good Bible colleges and seminaries, and, and if we were a real church, we'd... No. Can I tell you where good preachers come from? Good pastors are created by good churches, and so this church has a history. You've got multiple generations here. Good churches produce good pastors. That's the way it's supposed to happen. 
And the best pastors, I was actually were worshiping on the front row, I was thinking through the good pastors that I know. And all the good churches I know have raised up their own pastors and leaders in the succession of generations. You say, well, why him? Why didn't somebody else get chosen? You know, sometimes that happens in church life. Every time we select a new elder in any church I've been in, somebody leaves the church because <laughs> they think they should have been. Now, obviously, not everybody can serve. So God chose him. Now, one thing I like about your pastor... <laughs> He's like, why me? <laughs> Who me? But God chose him. There's the key. God chose him. And he didn't choose others. He chose him. And somebody's saying, thank you, God. Don't thank you. You didn't choose me, God. And he chose him. <laughs> you realize how powerful it is when a church gets behind the pastor? Behind the man who's called? Say, well, I have a vision. First, lay your vision down. Ask the pastor what his vision is. Because he's going to sit with the elders and the leaders and work that through. And as he begins to cast that vision, God's going to bless the vision that you have under that vision. And there's this secret in the kingdom. is You and I begin to serve the vision of others, and God lets us serve the vision that we have as well. Powerful. Um, as a result, the whole church flourishes. The, the key here is that the people were praying for their pastor. They were refreshing his heart, encouraging his heart. Uh, in, in church life, uh, pastors get emails, occasionally letters, the big thick ones that are handwritten are really scary when you're a pastor. You open them up gingerly. My wife saw one come in. She opened it. She was apprehensive. She said, Phil, I opened it and it was on sign. Those are the worst. <laughs> um, she said, but as I read it, she said I was just melted. It was a story of a lady who had just given up on going to church. She had been so hurt by past church experiences because Christian people were attacking other Christian people. And you know what happens when Christians attack other Christians? The devil declares himself neutral and sells weapons to both sides. <laughs> And she tells in this letter how she'd gone through all this pain and then God had led her to Evergreen Church because she had driven by at some event and how that had totally changed her life. She'd been with us over two years and all that difficulty. And God had blessed her heart. And Leslie said, you just have to read this letter, Phil. You just have to read this letter. It refreshed my heart. Once in a while, share with your pastor, God has blessed me through the ministry. Pray for him. Pray on Saturday. Pray all week long as he's preparing his message. God, feed me. As you tithe into the house, there'll be food in the house, and you're going to be blessed out of that. There's just all the strengthening that happens, and then you're going to find yourself growing. Start taking notes. I remember the first time somebody took notes on one of my messages, and I looked down. It was a young guy, and I saw this lady writing down what I was saying, and I thought, oh, no, I have to say something important. I got so scared, I stumbled in my words and got lost in my tracks. Um, pray for the driver. And then the church begins to move forward. God just loves unity. He begins to command a blessing. It doesn't mean we all agree. Have a wide zone of tolerance so that Democrats and Republicans can worship in the same house. In my church, I've got a right-wing Republican on one side who campaign and serve on staff of U.S. senators, and on the other side, I've got stream left-wing Democrats who oversee the political campaigns in, in Seattle region. And somehow we all get together. And we all work together. And they all are my friends. Because we just focus at Jesus and they pray for the driver and we're able to move forward. Pray for your pastor. It's the most powerful thing you can do. I remember my mother-in-law who's lived through a lot of pastors in like 50 years of the church where she got saved. She said, you know, they had this pastor back in the 80s. She said, he got really dry. And she said, I decided I would start praying for him. And she said, I, I don't know whether he got better or my prayers changed my heart, but he got interesting and he got good and he got better. Just something so powerful about beginning to pray for spiritual leaders. This is what happened in our city um, as we began to reach out into that fire I told you about. We began raising funds for downtown businesses because we, we did a little snow cone thing and they said, you can sell, sell snow cones for like a dollar. And I said, no, we'll give them away. And we just got a big fireman's boot. and People were just putting wads of money into that fireman's boot. They raised uh, $107,000. 
at that, which became a fund to help eight businesses that were devastated by the fire and help them in their time of need. And as I watched that happening, and it, I, I get really emotional when we work with our city, because I just love our city. I love our businesses, I'm involved in the Chamber of Commerce, a lot of stuff with city government. And I, I just feel like I'm called to be the pastor of our city. But when I'm out there, I know it's our church. Um, one of the things we do for our city, we, we host our city's July 4th parade. We put about 120 volunteers out in matching t-shirts, and we guide the, the traffic and keep the kids safe. And uh, recently at Chamber of Commerce, uh, we do giveaways at Chamber of Commerce, leadership books. And one of the business guys who serves on the board said, you know, the talk behind the scenes is that Evergreen Church is a business. <laughs> I said, really? He said, you're just in the business of helping people? And in the chamber, you are really respected. Speaking of which, there's only six Christians and hundreds of members of the Chamber of Commerce, only six that I know of. And they talk about you, and they love your church. And they, you see, when you and I begin to love people who are far from God and begin to treat people who don't have a relationship with God as if they were followers of Jesus, it, this is what I do. You say, well, how do you, how do you witness to non-believers? I just pretend that everybody's a Christian. I know this sounds weird. I pretend everybody's a Christian. And then I find I don't get nervous, they don't get defensive, the words just begin to flow. And before long, I make friends of some of the most remarkable people Hindus, Buddhists, secular people, they're all my friends, as well as Christians, they're all my friends, reaching out into the community. Paul says it this way, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Whatever you see your pastor do, just do it. That'll keep him on his toes. <laughs> Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for your spirit. We thank you for New Testament church. And I pray that this church would step into a fresh and beautiful season. Yeah. That there would be life in this church, vibrancy in this church, because there's faith in this church and hope in this church and love in this church. Refresh the vision. Sharpen the vision. Please anoint Doug with a new clarity in his leadership. Bless the board and leaders who are around him. Bless the people of this church. And I pray that Woodland would be greatly blessed because of New Testament Church. Let a whole new stage of ministry unfold. I pray that new plans and strategies will open. Old relationships will be renewed. New relationships will be opened up. And there will be a whole new season of life. In Jesus' name, amen. Can I just leave you with one thought before Pastor comes? Your church has a disproportionate influence in this town for your size. You are respected. So make the most of that. God wants to use it powerfully.